0: Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of If I Only Knew. Today, I'm joined by my fantastic co-host, Fred. Fred, say hi. Hello, listeners. And we're very keen to have you here today. Um, We want to talk a little bit about psychology, one of our classic topics. Um, And, you know, I'm aware that many of our listeners are practicing clinicians in some form or another. And so I've been doing a little bit of thinking about what it might mean to get in the mind of the young person in the chair um, during a therapy session. And I think this is something that I wanted to bring to Fred as a practicing psychologist, and I also wanted to bring to our, to our audience um, as people who might have these experiences and might want to get a little bit behind the scenes in what young people in their lives might be feeling. And so I think. The place to start here for me is uh, trying to unpack what a young person um, is actually kind of feeling and thinking when they're coming to um, a therapy session or what, what, what motivates them there. Right? And obviously, this is different for everyone. Um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts for it and what maybe how you rank these as, uh, as common uh, outcomes. But, you know, I'm imagining there's like referred to by a doctor pressure from parents, um, pressure from school maybe, and maybe like a personal desire to to go get some help or something. Do those seem like pretty solid reasons why you reckon young people might go seek out some therapy in the first place?
1: Absolutely, Matt. And I want to say uh, at the outset, one of the things I really love about my profession is that more and more it's becoming known that um, self-exploration and therapy don't mean that there's something wrong Mm. Um, and they're a sign of strength. They're a real sign of resilience. I would have said to you that when I started my career, which is about, you know, 15 years ago, the majority of young people I would have seen would have been referred by parents or doctor Yeah, right. and they would have had to swim through a fair bit of stigma. Mm. Um, And that's what's held back uh, a lot of people from accessing psychology. The fear that by seeing a mental health professional, by definition, that makes you in quote unquote crazy. Mm. Now, more and more, what we're seeing is a real understanding and a real literacy around mental health, which means more and more young people are self-referring, right, um, or are asking for that help or seeking out help from mum and dad or help from doctor to get access to a good therapist. Mm. One of the things I really like, and I've noticed this recently, Matt, is even in our popular culture, we've stopped talking about psychiatry and started talking more accurately about psychology.
0: Yeah, right, yeah.
1: Uh, And that's the shift, I think, between this idea of a clinically presenting um, diagnosed uh, scary scenario versus the fact that Australia has got a pretty good level of literacy when it comes to mental health at the moment. Mm. And as a result of that, people understand where to go to get help. Mm. Not all of the people and not all of the time. But I do think all the things that you spoke about, probably the other thing I put in there, Matt, as a presenting issue is partners.
0: Yeah, that's People often
1: forget that young kids... I want to just clarify, uh, when we talk about young people, uh, because I'm a bit old, that's almost (laughs) everybody now... But I'm talking about two groups of people, um, older adolescents and young adults. So anywhere between about 14 and about 25. Yeah,
0: less children, more young people sort of thing.
1: That's certainly certainly, um, an increasing group of people, particularly the paediatric space. But for today's discussion, I think, and the relevance of most of our listeners who are either fall into that clinical space or fall into that age bracket. Mm. I think we can say, you know, older adolescents and and young adults Mm. is is the focus of our topic today. Mm.
0: Excellent. Look, that's really uh, on board with what I was thinking. And I don't want to get too bogged down in some things that have already been talked about a lot, but that process of how do you get involved in psychology in the first place or therapy seems to matter because you know that's that's the pathway in there Um, and I think the natural conversation that goes along with that which you know we're all more or less aware of is how difficult it can be to get those appointments in the first place or to actually take the step from realizing that I want to see someone I want to get some help um, to then getting support and I think the really striking thing that I'm sure you know we're all across is that you can need help in an instance or you can realize that something's wrong and you need to talk to someone and then that can get better by the time you've gone to therapy and i think yeah. that's a striking uh, feature of the way our system works you know I'm, not, I'm no expert i couldn't make it a better system right now but uh, i think there is a problem there and i think that that's something that young people will be very conscious of especially because i think time seems to move faster when you're a bit younger. And, you know, I've not yeah. experienced too much of this, Fred, but even I can tell, you know, I'm, what, 23 now? I can tell that when I was, like, 18 or 16, time just moved a bit faster. The years went quicker. And so if there's, you know, if I need help in in January and I don't get an appointment till April or something, a lot has changed in my life at that point um, in those few months. And I think there might be something worth keeping in mind when you're working with young people about that like the physical experience of the passing of time and maybe because you know young people are growing up really quickly it's a very developmental stage of life there's a lot changing it might well mean that someone comes to you thinking that they really need help on an issue and things have changed and I think there's an interesting question do you do you try to kind of reel them back into that um, space where they were when they needed help to try and work on those problems with the you know maybe the the idea is those things could come back or um, they came to you for a reason they need the strategies to deal with them in the future and is it worth reeling that back or do you kind of work on some other things that are a bit less pressing now or something like that
1: there's probably a couple of things I'd say there, and I'd even go back a little bit and just to address the idea that sometimes when we need therapy, we don't get it mm. until later on. Mm. Um, and what I say to people typically is, is there's two approaches to therapy, two broad approaches that I consider. Um, neither is right or wrong, but they're just the things I've observed over mm. a career is that typically there's an entrance into therapy in crisis. Mm. Or there's an entrance into therapy for coaching. Right, yeah. And I use that term very broadly. Typically, it doesn't matter why people come to therapy and it doesn't matter how they got there. It doesn't really matter if mum or dad or doctor or even a court has mm. mandated that they attend. Right. Because at the end of the day, if they turn up, then that's the battle. Right, yeah. Okay once they're in the room and they realize it's not scary and their therapist is truly in their corner, mm-hmm. then it becomes, in most times, a fairly good meeting of the minds. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'd say is my colleagues might say mandated clients are harder to work with than voluntary clients. Right, yeah. And there's some sense to that because nobody you know, no, nobody really wants to be told what to do. And certainly with... Uh, younger people, the idea of power over from someone else like a court or a school
2: mm.
1: can be fairly intimidating. Mm. I think that's the therapist's job to deal with that pretty quickly and say, it doesn't matter how you got here, mm. that you're here now, can you see some value in a journey where you might understand a little bit more about these issues that got you here. Mm. So these issues never impact on you again. Mm. Mm. Now, one of the questions that you, one of the points that you put there that I find absolutely fascinating, and I love the way you said it, is time moves fast for young people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. I love the way you said it. And it's just informed my therapy a little bit, actually, because (laughs) it's typically um, that young, very engaged client that says, what do you mean? I've got to wait a week for my next session. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean a fortnight? And one of the things we've learned in psychology, Matt, is this traditional model of 50 minutes every fortnight is um, bunkum. It doesn't exist in the grand scheme of things. And there are a lot of therapeutic modalities that we practice that are accelerated and work really well for young people. And that's like group programs. Mixed modality programs where people are getting out and about. Right. You might do work in, you know, with a specific project or a specific theme. Mm. One of the groups that we run in our organization is dating and relationships. And that's mm. a group based program to help people understand their issues mm. and help them become better citizens of the dating world, if you can believe that. Yeah, yeah. I wish that was around when I was a kid. I might have gotten my start a bit earlier. But um, one of the things I think that you also pointed out, though, is in the face of different ways that people get to treatment, and the the anxiety of youth. I don't mean that in the specific term. I mean the general term: the impatience, the the fact that time does move fast. And yeah, yeah. You feel stuff really intensely. Sometimes people land in the therapist chair at a point where it's like it's all said and done. Mm, yeah, and I've resolved the issue. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really important there is as opposed to do you drag them back or propel them forward, the best philosophy I have is you you meet them where you find them.
0: Cool,
2: yeah.
1: So if somebody says to me, and I'll use a hypothetical example, um, you know, three months ago my girlfriend left me for my best friend. Right. And I've been really on edge about that. And I'm, you know, devastated. I couldn't get out of bed for two months. Mm. But I'm a bit better now. Mm. Mm. The first question I would ask is, let's talk about what's helped.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. Because in that journey, in that disclosure past the point of crisis, we do have a bit of space to move into coaching. And probably the thing I find really interesting about that is, there are solutions available to that person. Now, if that person says to me, well, look, what I've been doing is, you know, punching 80 cones a day just yeah. to numb the pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I go, okay, we've worked, learnt one strategy works for you, which is a strategy of avoidance or tranquilizing yourself. Mm. And if there have there been times during that time when you haven't? And if we stop doing that, for example, mm. what do you reckon is going to come up for you? Because that's just me meeting them where I find
2: them. Mm.
1: It's not my job to set the agenda. Right. One thing that really resonated with me, there is a school of psychology called existential psychology. Mm. And I remember somebody saying to me once, if I if I was to define existential psychology, it goes a bit like this. You're climbing a mountain mm. and I'm climbing a mountain. Mm. From the mountain you're climbing, you'll have obstacles. Mm. And from the mountain I'm climbing, if I can see those obstacles and maybe shout out some some early warning for you, Mm. perhaps that makes your climb a little bit easier. Mm. Mm. And in that phrase or that context, they're not setting up the therapist as expert. They're setting up the therapist as guide, as coach, And someone that has their own issues that they've got to deal with on their own mountain that shouldn't come into therapy, if that makes sense.
0: I think that's a fascinating insight because I have a feeling that a lot of young people would go into therapy feeling as the subject, right? I feel like they'd go into therapy thinking, I'm not in the driver's seat the therapist is the expert they're gonna take me somewhere or they're gonna have expectations for me or they're gonna have a routine or a practice or or something that i need to slot into and i think making that expectation very clear with them that actually i'm here to meet you where you are and work with you would be an excellent uh uh, kind of framing to begin with young people with and i think there's a few things about that i think as a young person you have primarily experience with parents and teachers. And so then you go into a professional environment with someone who feels a lot like a parent or a teacher, and you expect that they're going to treat you in the same way, or that the your relationship and dynamic is going to be the same. And I think that that parallel is, is implicit and almost unavoidable in young people's minds. Um, I know that um, I'm doing a lot of work in my own life to try and feel more um, agentful and feel more like I'm able to um, stand my ground and, and take initiative and that kind of thing in, in really simple places, like in the shops, Fred. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that at work. I'm good at that at uni. I've learned how to do that at uni. But we talked about bargaining a few episodes ago. Yeah. And like, it really is the same thing, but I don't feel like I have a right to bargain because I feel like the store clerk is like a teacher or some shit and that is ridiculous but I think a lot of young people have had this attitude kind of seep into them through the institutions we've been a part of and so I think managing those expectations and recognizing that part of um, a young person's attitude to psychology and engaging with it right away would be great now i've got i've got another question on a very similar line um because i think this is very interesting i've i've known people who've gone to therapy and just don't feel like they're kind of able to say what they want to say in therapy they feel like they don't want to disappoint the therapist or they don't want exactly and i think this isn't that unusual right and and i think this comes back down to that idea of being in the driver's seat. Um, maybe that's also something that's worth emphasizing that the only reason the psychologist is here is to help you as a young person and that we can go wherever you want to go and if it's not working for you interrupt me and you know I'm at your disposal in this section. Now I'm not sure maybe there's some blurred lines around the need to be somewhat authoritative or, or someone reliable. I'm not sure how that balance is struck and maybe you can speak to that.
1: And again I think one of the things we're talking about there Matt is from the client and the therapist forming very early on, the therapeutic alliance. And I describe it to people as this. And this is my way. It's not any form of um, you know, technical prescription mm. for colleagues listening. I used to start sessions by saying, listen, in this room, everything is safe. Mm-hmm. There are some limits to that. And we talk about things like self-harm or harm to others. Mm-hmm. And that's important because... A psychologist has a primary responsibility to their client, which means that we're going to do whatever we can to safeguard that person. Yeah. But one of the things I've always been aware of is finding a therapist is a bit like picking a flatmate
0: right? Yeah.
1: or a gym partner or, you know, what sort of doubles team you want to join in tennis. There's got to be a little bit of chemistry there. And one of the things I say very openly in a session, and sometimes it's at the start, sometimes it's at the end, is and typically it's at the start where I say, you're going to give a lot of yourself in this process. And if at the end of this uh, session you don't feel that there's a resonance or a comfort here, that's okay. It, it, it won't offend me. Yeah, yeah. After having heard your story, it'll allow me to maybe use what I know to find you a therapist that you do resonate with mm-hmm. because you know, like everything, I'm not for everybody. But yeah. take the chance, put it out there, and we'll see how we go. Mm. By disarming them straight away with that, part of what I'm giving up is this idea of expert, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm saying I might not be for everybody. And yeah. and look, as a therapist, I have, I'm have i quite stylized as we all become. Mm, um, right. So I don't mind, and, and this is why I like working with younger people, because... I create permission for people to say, uh, hey, just I want to time out on this. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you're talking about something, but actually I think the real point is this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, I've been there, done that, tried that sleep hygiene shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing happens that's any good with my friends until we're all online at one o'clock. So, you know, reset your expectations, boomer, because that's not how the world works. And I love stuff like that. And I create a little bit of space for that. I used to tell people, Matt, I have to say this to you, and there's a bit of humor to it. I used to tell my clients, particularly my young clients, that it wouldn't matter what they said in therapy. I was unshockable.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: But sometimes young people take that on as a challenge.
0: Ah, yeah, I can see that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I stopped saying that because when people used to talk about what young people now do that I never did, Mm. I used to, and and I remember one client going, "Did I just shock you?" And I went, "Not really. There might be a bit of envy, but no shock." (laughs) You know. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things I think is really important for our younger listeners listening is when you set up therapy, you are the architect and the expert in you. Hmm. And it's often not unusual to say to somebody, and I'll say it is, look, I might throw some stuff out there for you to chew on. If Hmm. there's something of value here, take it away, tell me about it, we'll practice it next time or we can build it into something. Yeah. If it's all useless, I won't be offended if you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I often
1: get young people coming in saying, I thought about what you said last week. I don't like X, Y, Z. Mm. I've tried that shit, doesn't work for me. Yeah, Right. But what I do like, what I did think about is this thing and you go, cool.
0: Yeah, great, great.
1: Because your therapist also learns a lot from what doesn't work. This mm. is the bit that people forget. Therapy is research practitioner.
0: It's iterative. Cool. It means each session you're building
2: on mm. something
0: mm. that that works for the person. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting side of this the the way that it's mediated by the young person. This is something that I really wanted to get to um, for our listeners because I think there's this really interesting feature of being like in a therapy room where yeah, kind of two minds that are like mediating the conversation for one another and and what strikes me is that each person will have the thought of what they're going to say before they say it and yeah. then they'll reflect on what they've said maybe as they're saying it and um, I can really imagine a world in which um, young people because young people are so psychologically literate in many ways now where a young person um, senses or monitors what they say with reference to their understanding of how psychology works or how a psychologist yep. is. So like a good example might be something like, um, saying something and then going, Oh, hang on a minute. That makes you think that I'm a risk to yep. myself or others. Um, let me step that back. Now, maybe they're stepping that back because they're actually not a risk to risk to themselves or others, percent. or maybe they're stepping it back because, We've got this like kind of meta knowledge of how psychology works as young yeah. people, and don't want to set off those alarm bells for a psych because you know maybe they want to be violent or whatever. Um, and I think there's there's an aspect here where um, that ability to peer inside the mind of what a young person's expectations and knowledge of psychology are can allow you to get a better sense of what they're um, mediating before they say it sort of thing, and maybe read yeah. between the lines a little bit. What do you reckon?
1: I, I think you're 100% onto something there. And, and this is what I would say in response to that. In the event that you're having this meta, I think you kids use the word meta to yeah. describe yeah. this sort of interaction. See what I did there? See how I gave you some power there? <laughs> I know what the word means. But I, that's, that was a technique. Or we
0: can define it if you want, Fred. <laughs> no, it's
1: okay. But what I what I think is really important is As a therapist, when I see people curating, I'll often do something a little bit radical and say something like, hey, Johnny, uh, I call bullshit on that.
2: Cool. Mm -hmm.
1: I don't buy it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just tell me what you really think.
0: Right, okay, yeah.
1: But I would say to this, if, if you're participating in therapy and your therapist is not clocking the curation Mm. the chemistry might not be right or it might be a bit early
0: cool cool that's interesting
1: so there's two things i'd suggest that people do one is put it all out there
2: Mm. Mm.
1: if somebody said to me listen i don't want to tell you this because you're going to react in a certain way because i understand how you have to do but when i leave this room i'm going to get a brick." Mm. I'm going to go up to that car of that asshole that bullied me at school because I can see it parked across the road mm. and I'm going to smash the windscreen in. Mm. Mm. And if you try to stop me, you might cop the brick in the face. Right. Go, cool. yeah. All right. Where's the brick?
2: Mm.
1: You know, I don't know. I'll fucking find one. Mm. Cool. So what we want to do is we want to feel empowered now because we were bullied back then.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're to
1: unpack that for me a bit. Let's, yeah. let's talk about that. I'm not going to stop you picking up a brick when you leave this room. Mm-hmm. If you still want to do that before you go, we'll have a talk about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. As long as I'm safe, I'd rather not get hit by a brick today.
0: <laughs> yep, I can understand that. You know. Mm-hmm.
1: But the response that I typically would get from something like that is what you just did then. People mm-hmm. would laugh.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Because there's a degree of real passion and rage and anger, but there's really hurt under that. Nobody wants to pick up a brick and smash someone's car.
2: Yeah. Because yeah. the
1: second that they do it, they feel a moment of triumph and then they, they feel tons of regret, right? Yeah, yeah. We want to get past that to the processing and safeguard the person's reputation. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably safeguard them from legal consequences. Mm. Because at the end of the day, it's not my place to judge. If you really, if you, part of your cathartic process is smashing that windscreen in with a brick, I I can tell you what the consequences might be and ask you to consider those. Mm, mm. But would I ever physically stop you doing that? No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're a person with agency. Fortunately for me, it hasn't happened that way. And the one thing I'd say is when people are most vulnerable, you tend to find them most honest.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I wonder for those out there that are probably, and and there is a meta, there there is always a curation of who we are because we're just taught that as part of human nature. Mm -hmm. In therapy, I think with a degree of comfort, I've actually had clients say, can I just stop for a sec? I bullshitted before. Yeah. That was a lie. Mm -hmm. I fucking hate that person.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I also think, Matt, one of the things, just going back a little earlier, is often this idea of crisis versus coaching.
2: Mm.
1: By the time people get into the chair, the crisis is over.
2: Mm.
1: I believe young people are generally aware enough to say, this not, might not be crisis management, mm. but if the coaching helps, I'll stick it out. Yeah. And I yeah. always say to people, when the crisis passes, that's when the real work's done. Mm because when you're in crisis, the therapist is, is working with you while you manage the crisis. When the crisis is passed, the therapist is working with you on how you navigate what comes next. Mm, mm, mm. They're both important, but one's a little bit more personal development, and the other one's a little bit like triage and you know it's a difference between to your doctor to get your health check each year mm. versus turning up to accident and an emergency with a nail through your hand
2: yeah
0: for sure for sure i reckon there's something particularly striking about this idea that um you know it's obviously a part of the psychological training and whatnot but that like you've got two people in a room and both are Trying to manage immediate expectations and are trying to kind of meet somewhere in the middle and find that alliance. And I think that's really essential. And I have a feeling that there'd be value in articulating something like that to young people who might not be aware that that's how these things work. Because um, mm-hmm. I think we've got this um, much more literate uh, young population about mental health, but I think the actual insight into what it's like in a room of therapy um, can be a lot harder to come across without having been there before, I suspect. Um, and so I think that um, there might be some value in, in having some of those conversations with young people early. Uh, well, look, I think that might just about wrap it up for us. Fred, do you have anything else you want to finish with?
1: One of the things I'd say, Matt, about people in therapy, um, do you know what you call a psychologist in an empty room? No. Unemployed.
0: Okay, <laughs> okay yeah. Okay.
1: The psychologist is only there to serve as a guide, right? The psychologist is not an expert in you. There's a lot that they know that can help you get from point A to point B on your journey a little bit faster.
0: Mm, Right.
1: But they're not a resource that will tell you right from wrong. They're not a resource that gets to judge. Mm. If you're sensing judgment from your therapist and they're not naming it, then you put it out there and say, are you judging me? And I've had clients do that. Mm. There are often clients, young people will often come to a white cisgender male like me Mm. and say, you couldn't possibly understand why I hate religion.
0: Right, okay. You
1: couldn't possibly understand what it's like to be polyamorous. Mm. Mm. And the reality is I can understand, but because I'm learning it from you,
0: Right, yeah.
1: I can't tell you that I was ever in a polyamorous relationship, but I can learn from you the the ups and the downs, the goods and the bads, the pros and the cons. Mm. But it's not what you present with that I'm learning about. It's where you want to take it. Right. And without you in the room, there is no job for me. Mm, mm, mm. So if you're a young person or you're a clinician, I think the thing to remember is, most therapists are good therapists in their own way for the right person. And they're good therapists because they understand their position is a privilege, not a right. Mm. They're there at your request. And when things are good, double down and do the work. That's the that's the time I want to see people the most. Therapists want to celebrate your wins as well, Matt.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, that's a fantastic message, friend. I think it's something that can get lost in the physical versus mental health kind of comparison, because I'm not going to go to a doctor when I'm not feeling sick anymore. Right. But maybe there's there's that space in mental health for exactly that. Well, thank you very much, listeners, for coming into another episode of If I Only Knew. I hope that we've been able to offer some thoughts into how young people might uh, consider themselves uh, in that chair, perhaps. Um, Remember to uh, rate our episodes on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Um, Send us an email at the email address in our bio, um, letting us know what episodes you'd like us to do. And uh, tune in next time for If I Only Knew.
1: Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a better pod group production, with special thanks to our researcher Nicola Binks, executive producer Matt Lanch, the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio, and of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is a podcast considered treatment, and in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through 000 or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes, and the opinions Voiced by podcast hosts of theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is of course the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate
2: entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.